We want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel this morning and looking forward to our discussion of eternal rewards. Had a great uh, discussion last week as we talked about crowns. If you missed that, I want to encourage you to check that out uh, on the videos. Remember, we video all of our services and Bible studies. So uh, if you ever miss one, you can go to either plumcreekchapel.org or notbyworks.org. Uh, Plum Creek Chapel website. We just always have the most recent uh, sermon and Bible study and Bible class lesson. Uh, but at the Not By Works website, you can go back years. So you just, uh, they're always in date order. So if you ever miss one, you can check it out there. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, both of the books are now available. We put some more out in the lobby on the table. If you don't have one yet, feel free to pick one up. Uh, if you've already gotten a free copy, then we want to encourage you, if you get others, be sure and put some money in the pot there for the church. Those belong to the church. They purchase them at cost, and so we want to help recover the cost there. Uh, if you're watching online, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and, uh, and find out more about the books there. Uh, we kicked off a new series Wednesday, had a good crowd for the start of it, uh, and we had, I think, 60 people live streaming, which was great. Um, but Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock, we're talking about the greatness of God. And uh, what an awesome God we serve, and we got, got off to a great start just looking at several passages in the Old Testament and some in the New that talk about our great God and who He is and some of the names of God. And uh, this week we're going to get into some of the attributes of God and talk about His eternality, the one thing that really, uh, I think, explains a lot as we try to understand God from our temporal finite minds, we need to remember He is an eternal God. Several podcasts this week. Always encourage you to check out the podcast channel. Uh, and uh, we did one as recently as Friday night, a two-hour live stream with a group called Life Clips. And uh, it was really good. Some great questions, great discussion. Went kind of section by section through some highlights of the new book, uh, Volume 2, Spirit of the Antichrist. And uh, really flowed well. And I uh, appreciated the host, uh, Kim Duarte, who's the host of Life Clips. Uh, asking me to come on for that. And so you can check that out at uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. But if you go to notbyworks.org, just click on the podcast tab on the left-hand side, and you can listen to some of the ones from this week. We did one uh, extended one with Randy on Wednesday about UFOs, the Bible, and you. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty scary, actually, as we went through it. I almost uh, had to hang up in the middle of it, but I didn't think Randy would appreciate that. Uh, but no, some really powerful stuff as we try to think about uh, all of the paranormal and phenomenalistic types of things that are happening in the lead up to the rapture, as the Bible says they will, and how that relates to this uh, upsurge in UFO discussion and you know, UFOs are on everyone's mind. So check out those podcasts. All right, well, uh, let's pick up where we left off last week um, with our discussion of eternal rewards. Remember, these are rewards that will be doled out at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, all believers, the Bible tells us, from the church age will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be rewarded for the works that we've done in the body during this present age as we await the Lord's return. As we talked about, the rewards will be based not so much on what you do, but how, why you do it, the attitude, the counsels of the heart. And so as we serve the Lord faithfully, trusting Him, uh, there will be all kinds of behaviors that the Bible speaks of specifically, we looked at that several weeks ago, that will be rewarded. And then 
Last week, we began our look at the kinds of rewards uh, that will be distributed at the judgment seat. And by the way, we, do, we did find some extra handouts, so if anybody does not have one of the handouts, or you didn't bring yours, or you'd like an extra, there's some up here, and I'll just give maybe somebody, if, if you need it, raise your hand and we can get it to you. Anybody need a handout? Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, you mind, Kelly? Thank you. So raise your hand if you need a handout. If you're watching online, I've mentioned this several times, but feel free to email me and I'll send you the PDF. We've had dozens of you do that already, and we'll be glad to, uh, to do that again for our live streamers or if you're watching this video later. Um, but we talked last week about crowns and talked about how there are two kinds of crowns. Uh, one of them is a, uh, a prize or a, a reward for victory, like the kind of wreath that you would put on a runner who wins a a marathon. But the other one is diadema, which is a royal crown, which is the crown that Christ will wear when he comes back to establish the long-awaited messianic kingdom. And interestingly, we talked about how that word diadema, uh, it, in English we transliterate it diadem, uh, a crown, uh, is actually used twice of the Antichrist, who's trying to be the king and take over the world. Uh, so that's one reward. Uh, but let's take a look at some other passages that talk about reigning with Christ in the kingdom. So let's start out with uh, Revelation chapter 20. I think we looked at this once before in a different context. But in Revelation chapter 20, this is uh, at Christ's second coming when he establishes the kingdom, the, the, the first thousand years of the kingdom called the millennium. In fact, this is where we get that thousand year delineation, which is why we call it the millennium. So if you look at our uh, end times chart here, uh, you can kind of see how when Christ comes back, see where it says Armageddon and the second coming up there in black and the, towards the right, Christ comes back at the end of the se uh, seven-year tribulation. Then Daniel talks about two different lengths of time that are necessary to sort of clean up all of the, the mess that in, uh, exists after Armageddon. Uh, 40 and 30, or let's see, 30 and 45 days, I think it is. So 75 days combined from Daniel 12. But then the kingdom actually begins, and notice the first thousand years of it we call the millennium, and we get that from this passage we're looking at right now in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 4, starting in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the reigning with Christ is going to include not just church age believers, but here we see martyrs from the tribulation that are included in that. So the obviously the martyrs from the tribulation won't appear before the judgment seat, but there will be all kinds of opportunities for people to reign and serve in special positions. Um, and, and so what people forget is that the kingdom is not nebulous or, you know, hard, you know vague. It's a, it's a literal earthly world, much like the Luciferians are trying to usher in now, you know, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, uh, you know, the UN trying to come up with this global system where there's one central authority, one central global leader. Well, that is where the world is headed, and it's going to, at first, be ruled by uh, a satanically inspired antichrist, but then it will be ruled for all of eternity by God himself, 
the triune God, first by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who takes the throne long promised to him, and then ultimately by God. So uh, that kingdom, if you just think back to life prior to the fall, I mean, Adam and Eve were functioning, they were talking to God, they were tending the garden, they were living life. Had sin not entered the world, they would have uh, been obedient to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply, and we would have had an earth filled with sinless people. Um, But of course, they sinned prior to uh, having children, and therefore everyone born since Adam and Eve, uh, you know, we're all sons of Adam in that sense, is born in sin, Romans 5.12. But uh, the point is, we tend to, uh, for some reason, I think a lot of this has to do with Hollywood and just some false depictions of heaven, tend to somehow think of heaven as, as this weird place where we float around in the clouds with harps and just, you know, singing songs or something. But the, the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed is a new heaven and a new earth that is recreated in sinless perfection. And the lead up to that is that thousand year period on this present earth when uh, life will kind of go on much as it is today, except that instead of national sovereignty, everyone will be under one authority, the authority of Christ. Uh, Isaiah the prophet tells us in Isaiah 9 that all the governments will be upon his shoulders when he comes back. Um, And so it'll be a one world uh, government. And in that context, God's people are going to hold certain positions uh, of authority. So reigning with Christ is one of those privileges. It's not automatic. Not everybody will reign uh, with Christ. Um, But if you go to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, this is uh, a passage we've looked at a lot. So forgive me if it's repetitious for some of you, but I know we're always picking up new folks. But Remember the context here, Jesus has just uh, uh, been invited uh, to Zacchaeus' house, um, and uh, Zacchaeus gets saved. This is where Luke tells us, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That chapter 19, verse 10, the immediately preceding verse, that's the theme verse of all of Luke, kind of the, gives us the purpose statement of Luke, if you will. Um, he presents this Christ as the Son of Man who's coming to save the lost. But then, uh, this, the, historically, this account took place uh, outside Jerusalem as uh, uh, Jesus is on the verge of entering uh, Jerusalem and you know, for the triumphal entry, which Luke accord, uh, records here beginning in verse 28. And so it's the day before the triumphal entry. The disciples are getting excited because it's, you know, it's getting to be Passover, and they knew that Christ is, has said multiple times he's going to reign. He's, he's the King of kings. The kingdom is at hand, he said, and John the Baptist said. So they're kind of connecting the dots and thinking the kingdom, the long-awaited kingdom that the Old Testament promised, was about to happen. And so Jesus tells this parable in Luke 19, 11 to 27, to uh, dispel that notion, to let them know, wait, not so fast. Not so fast. The kingdom isn't going to come right now. It's going to come, but it's not going to come right now. And I might mention that this is yet one of many examples that demonstrate the disciples throughout Christ's ministry expected a literal earthly kingdom from which, over which Christ would reign from Jerusalem sitting on you know, the throne. Never once do we get even the slightest hint 
that the disciples understood the kingdom metaphorically. So this is important because today, a lot of bad Bible teachers, I don't mean bad morally, but inaccurate Bible teachers, are out there suggesting that the kingdom is spiritual, it's, it's metaphorical, he's reigning in our hearts today, we're living in the kingdom, there's not going to be a literal brick and mortar temple and throne and kingdom geographically over the earth. And they, they make that up, we don't, you have no indication of that anywhere until you get to Augustine in the 4th century when he uh, writes his book City of God and he begins to suggest that since Christ hadn't come back yet and we'd been waiting for generations by that point, uh, maybe we missed it and so... Maybe it's, a, it's a, not a literal kingdom after all, it's, it's spiritual. Well, uh, the Bible knows nothing of that. And every indication you get in the Bible is they expected a literal kingdom. Remember, the disciples were fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Who would sit where in the kingdom. Uh, who, you know, one of the disciples' mothers requested that her son sit on either side of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to sit on twelve thrones. So, you know, again and again and again, you see a literal rep, you know, reference to the literal kingdom. And to sweep all that away and think that Jesus was talking only about a spiritual kingdom, and there's not going to be a literal kingdom, is just to do complete uh, disservice to the text and what it says. So here's yet another example. Luke records that Jesus, who knows the minds of the disciples, knew that, that they thought the kingdom was about to appear. Why? Because the king was there. He was headed into Jerusalem. Things were heating up. Things had gotten tense. Um, and, and, you know, so they thought the kingdom was going to come. So what does Jesus do? He tells them, no, not so fast. Uh, the king is going to go away to receive the kingdom. Right? He, he, hasn't, he, he is the king, but he's not reigning as the king yet. Right? So he's going to go away to receive the kingdom. And when he comes back, then you will get to reign with him based on your faithfulness. And so that's why he goes on to say that, you know, if you're faithful in, you know, he gives them each amina, which represents their life of service. They all have the same thing. Um, this parable is not the same thing as the parable of the talents. How many of you have heard of the parable of the talents, right? That's probably more famous than the parable of the minas, which is what this one is. And a lot of people conflate the two. They're totally different, completely different contexts, set in different settings. One was said to the Jews, one is said to the disciples before. Uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Olivet Discourse, and the final events of Passion Week. Uh, in the parable of the talents, each of the three servants get a different amount. One talent, what is it, one, five, ten, I believe. It's in Matthew 25. We can look it up. And then here, they each get one. They each get the same thing. Because everyone is entrusted with serving Christ faithfully while we await His return. And so, when He comes back, those who proved faithful, are, he says, you be in charge of five cities. You be in charge of ten cities. And the one who really did nothing with their mina but squandered it, uh, did not put it to good use, he gets nothing. He still gets into the kingdom, mind you, as Jesus makes clear in the parable. But he doesn't get a position of authority. He doesn't get to reign uh, with Christ in particular. Um, so uh, B and C on your list, we'll get to C in a second. But uh, it talks about special positions of service and authority. That, you know, this parable, since it is a parable, really applies to both. We're talking specifically about being co-reigners with Christ. So if you uh, flip over to Hebrews chapter 3, the Hebrew, uh, the Greek word in Hebrews for co-reigner is metakoi, Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, 
partakers of the heavenly calling. That word partaker there is metachory. And, you know, throughout Hebrews, he's challenging them not to abandon their faith because if they are steadfast to the end, they can be partakers, that is, co-reigners with Christ. If you look at Hebrews 3.14, we have become partakers of Christ, co-reigners with Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So a believer who gives up the faith, who abandons the faith, or who just lives a life of profligacy and doesn't stand firm in the spirit, who decides to live an immoral, debauched lifestyle, uh, he's not going to be classified as one who held his confidence steadfast to the end. Um, Hebrews talks a lot about this in chapter uh, 10. That's really the theme of Hebrews, by the way. In, in chapter 10, he says, um, see if I can find it here. Verse 35, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, uh, in the, sort of the opening remarks here to the audience, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. He's, he's arguing against angel worship here. A lot of the people that he was writing to here in the late 60s A.D. Uh, were sort of thinking that uh, you know, angels were somehow more enticing, more exciting to, to be a part of angel worship uh, than even Jesus Christ uh, himself. By now, Jesus had been dead 33 to 35 years. <clears throat> These Christians that, to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing were Jews that had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost. I mean, these were the earliest Christians, and they'd been Christians, many of them, for 30 years. That's why later on in the letter he says, by now you ought to be teachers, but you've regressed and you need someone to teach you the ABCs of Christianity. But the whole point of Hebrews is to challenge these you know, believers, these Jewish believers, who in 67, 68, 69, around the time of Nero, were facing intense persecution because of their faith, and having been identified with Christ <clears throat> and Christianity, they were being martyred, and their families were being pulled from their homes and imprisoned and tortured. And so many of these Jewish Christians were, were thinking, you know, I can't endure this. You know, here, here we are suffering at the hands of Rome, and yet these other Jews that are not believers, that are not Christians, they're going along just fine. You know, they're, they're getting a pass. And so they were contemplating, these Christian Jews, uh, disassociating with Christianity. Remember in chapter um, 10, I think it is, he says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Yeah, 1025. Uh, you know, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. <laughs> they were not going to meet with other Christians on the first day of the week. Because guess what? Roman soldiers were coming around on Sunday mornings to these house churches knocking on the door and saying, what's going on here? Come with me. You're heading, heading you know, to, the, to the gulag, right? And so all of this book of Hebrews, which is a fascinating book, but it's also vastly misunderstood, is written to believers, Jewish believers in particular, challenging them to hang on to your faith. Now, what is one of the motivations that the writer gives to these Christians? I mean, it's pretty tall order, right, to say, you know, 
Keep trusting God. Stay close to Jesus. I know you're about to be beheaded or burned at the stake, but trust God. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. And one of those rewards is a special position of co-reigning with Christ. And so uh, I think the Hebrews is a great uh, lesson for all believers of all ages in the last 2,000 years, is that um, life is not about what you can see and feel and touch. You know, we get upset because of the suffering that we have to face now, and we in Christian in, in America we're facing more and more persecution. I have a whole chapter about that, the rise of anti-Christian sentiment in America uh, in the new book. Um, but let's be honest, it pales in comparison to what our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced throughout church history. And if the Lord doesn't come back soon, we may face just as horrific of persecution. But thankfully, we're not there yet, most of us. I do believe, by the way, uh, in, in underground circles or secret circles, I think there are Christians in, within the boundaries of this continental United States that are facing horrific torture. We just don't hear about it. I think it's already happening. It's just occasionally it leaks out into uh, public view. So uh, Hebrews is a, is a powerful reminder that life is not about the here and the now. It's about the then and the there. That we are to set our minds on things above recognizing that it will be worth it all, right? Isn't there an old hymn that goes like that? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus, you know? Uh, and it will be. It will be. So, yeah, do you have a question? So, in Luke, you're talking about the Mina. Is that what you refer to when you say the Mina judgment? You often have said in the past. So, the Mina, I think the question is about the Mina, parable of the Minas and the Mina judgment. I think you're confusing that with the Bema judgment. Bema. It's actually the word Bema in Greek. It's an eta, not an epsilon. Not that you care, but epsilon is a short e, and eta is a long e. So it's Bema. And uh, so maybe that's what's in your in your mind. But have you had your coffee yet? I'm just <laughs> no more questions for you until you've had your coffee, Kelly. Okay. Um, so um, the Mina, the parable of Mina, as I typically call it, the parable of delay. Because really it's where Jesus explicitly states, he's hinted at it before. You see hints of it way back in the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Uh, but here he explicitly states, just days before he's tried and arrested, tried and crucified, he says, nope, there's going to be a delay. Be patient, be busy, do what I've asked you to do. I'm going to go away, I think it says, either for a long time or to a far country. Let me look real quick. Uh, he says the king is going to go away uh, to a far country, implying there that it's a long journey. You know, they just couldn't hop on Southwest Airlines and get there overnight or next hour. It's a long journey. So it's indicating that the kingdom is going to be delayed. It's not going to come right then. Now this is something that the Jews of the first century should have understood because the Old Testament prophets talk about it, particularly Daniel, the prophet, talks about after a Messiah is cut off, there will be a gap of time, and several things are going to happen in that gap of time, such as the destruction of the temple, and then it won't be till later when the Antichrist shows up and signs the peace treaty that that final seven-year period of Daniel's prophecy will come to pass. So you see hints of this... Um, 
that the that Christ's coming to earth would be in two phases. First, as the suffering servant uh, and Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A second time as the victorious warrior who would inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom. But those two comings are often blurred as one, and they were certainly blurred as one in uh, the early first century disciples' minds. They didn't understand that he was going to go away. So here, again, the closer he gets to the cross, he makes it very clear, I'm going to go away for a while. Um, Speaking of Old Testament passages that blur that distinction, look at Isaiah 9. I referenced it a minute ago. We're coming up on the Christmas season, which I can't wait for Christmas. We've got so many great things planned around here. Going to be a great time for Plum Creek Chapel. But a famous Christmas passage is Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. In verse 6 he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, what is that talking about? Those two lines there. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus, when? At birth, Bethlehem, right? Now, interestingly, a lot of liberal scholars are trying to suggest this is not talking about Jesus. But if you go back a couple chapters in Isaiah's prophecy, he, he has another reference to a child. Remember that one? In Isaiah chapter 7, he says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew quotes verbatim and applies to Jesus Christ. So the son that Isaiah 9 is talking about is the son born of a virgin in Isaiah 7 that is announced in the New Testament. But back to Isaiah 9, you should put a little line after the phrase, unto us a son is given. Because that's, that's all of that prophecy that happened at the first advent of Christ. Everything else in the rest of verse 6, going all the way to the end of verse 7, has not happened yet. And so remember in the original text of Hebrew, they didn't have verses and chapters. In fact, it was written on a scroll. They didn't even have word divisions. And so we break this up into verses, and so we read Isaiah 9, 6, and we often quote 9, 6, and 7, those two verses, at Christmas. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's a powerful passage and one that warms our heart. But let's face it, the vast majority of that section, which we call verses 6 and 7, has not happened yet. Notice what it says, "...for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." Absolutely, Bethlehem, virgin birth, Christ the Savior, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now notice what it says next. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, I mean, has the government, is the government upon his shoulder today? I don't know if anybody was paying attention this week, but pretty sure God's candidates didn't win, at least as much as they should have. Um, no, the government's not upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. My goodness, I mean, can we say that's happening today? <laughs> that the peace of Christ is reigning on the earth? Of course not. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will sit to order and establish it with judgment and justice. Is this a day of justice today? 
Not usually, yeah. But is this what the disciples are looking at as this is begun? Yeah, so exactly. This is the, the passage the disciples were looking at. They were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, and this is just one of many. Isaiah 61 is another one. <coughs> Excuse me. So, but they, you know, they blurred the distinction. And so they were expecting, so, so they, they didn't want to believe. This is the way I describe it. Jesus told them again and again, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, be betrayed, you know, all of it. And the Old Testament talks about it. Isaiah 53, right, talks about that. But they didn't want to believe it. It's hard to think of your master, your, you know, teacher that you've spent three and a half years with going through that. So they wanted the victory without the suffering. You know, they wanted the crown without the cross, is what they say. So, um, so they, but they still should have known, even, even if the Old Testament wasn't clear. I mean, I think it's clear if you really pay attention, but we, we can understand we probably would have been, you know, right there with them. But what's interesting, and I've talked about this before, but in Isaiah 61, we have a similar situation where, again, there were no chapters or verses, so Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he goes on, so you should put a line right after that first phrase of verse 2 because all of that took place at his first coming and then he goes on to say and the day of vengeance of our God and he goes on to talk about a lot of kingdom language and things that are going to happen in the coming kingdom now even if we didn't know just from now that we have the whole counsel of God and we can read the, the full story that this is talking about some things that happen at his first advent and some that happen at his second, Jesus himself actually explicitly tells us that there's a break here. Do you remember that? In going back to Luke, in the New Testament, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, in Luke uh, chapter 4, Jesus uh, begins his Galilean ministry in verse 14. Um, this is after the wilderness experience and the temptation. Uh, and he says, it, Luke tells us, Then Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, so picture a scroll, he opens it and finds the place, Luke tells us, he found the place where it was written, and, he's, and he's found, what he found was Isaiah 61 that we just read, what's now called in our English Bible is Isaiah 61. And look what he says, he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted. This should sound familiar, we just read it from Isaiah. Proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of divine to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Luke says, at that point he closed the book, so he stops mid-sentence, remember. He did not read the part about the day of vengeance of our Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, everyone's eyes were fixed upon him, and he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
that scripture, not the day of vengeance, that has not been fulfilled yet. When will that be fulfilled? Well, flip over to uh, Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, we read, verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Remember we said that's diadem. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and me, uh, the church. Now, now watch, verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's the day of vengeance. That's the great day of the Lord's wrath. You know, this is God's fulfillment of, you know, all of his promises of justice. And uh, just to finish the thought, and he has a, 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 on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the disciples were conflating Christ's suffering servant aspect, where he is the ultimate sacrifice a lamb without spot or blemish, with his victorious warrior aspect. So we are still living today in this age that the king in this parable of the Minas in Luke 19, uh, you know, while he's away to get the kingdom. So you all still have a Mina. You have a life. What are you doing with it? I know it's been a long time. We grow weary. Um, you know, we, we sure want as our forefathers did, and you know, if you come from a Christian family anyway, we all want our, you know, the Lord to come back. My grandfather desperately wanted the Lord to come back. I know my mom and dad desperately want the Lord to come back. Um, you know, they're uh, in their 80s. My dad's 80, and they love the Lord, and uh, they also fear, like many people their age, all of us really, but especially older believers, what's coming upon the earth. They fear for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Uh, I fear for my granddaughter and my kids. You know, boy, what if, what if it goes on another... What if I live to be 85 and I die? I mean, that's fine for me. I'm with the Lord. I mean, what a great blessing that's going to be. But what about the people left on earth? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this evil to dominate? So I get it. I get that it's, it's hard, but we have a job to do. And part of... Our vision should be on the coming kingdom and what it's going to be like, and will we be found faithful? And if so, we will be reigning with Christ. Yeah. So the disciples and Christ's followers reflecting on Isaiah and some of the other Old Testament uh, readings, mm -hmm. when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that was their uh, pinnacle that king was coming, he was going to take over at that point and overthrow the government. And, and That's what happen. they thought. And it didn't right, so the, the comment was when Jesus entered Jerusalem, that was kind of the pinnacle. They thought, okay, this is it. It's here. The kingdom is here. Yeah, that's what Luke tells us. Luke tells us that in verse 11, chapter 19. Because they were near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom was about to appear immediately, Jesus told them that parable. Now, one more sign that should have been clear 
is the fact that he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That's predicted by Isaiah and Zechariah. So again, they should have known that this was uh, all part of uh, you know, the, the plan. Um, but you know, they were caught up in the moment. Remember, there was a spattering of people along the road that day that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is what the nation of Israel will cry out when Christ comes to usher in the kingdom. Psalm 118 tells us that, the day of the Lord. Uh, the, uh, the, this is the day the Lord has made when the king comes and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there was a foretaste, if you want to call it that, um, a splattering of people that were excited but within days, those cries turned to crucify him, crucify him, and they turned on him. And, you know, one other sort of side note um, about this failure for Israel to see. Uh, now, many of the Jews did believe, the disciples chief among them. Uh, of course, they still abandoned him in that fateful moment when he was on the cross. But we're talking about the unbelieving Jewish people who never believed in him. They may have followed him out of curiosity, but they never trusted in him as the long-awaited Messiah. And uh, we it's important to understand that they had plenty of evidence, hard, fast evidence, based on the Hebrew Scriptures, that this is the guy. I mean, he was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He had a forerunner. He performed miracles, uh, even all the way up to the cross, as Psalm 22 tells us, David tells us, a lot of the things that the Messiah was going to face are exactly what Christ faced. So they had ample evidence to convince them that this is the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, all of these passages. Psalm 2, famous Luciferian conspiracy passage where God says, I've already installed my son. He's just waiting on the right time. So they should have known. So that should then help us uh, conceptually understand how the second time around so many Jews will be deceived. Because a lot of people sort of struggle with that, um, and really we shouldn't, but they say, well, you know, if, you know if, if this tribulation is literal, then how in the world will the disciples miss it? Because, I mean... It's, Jesus spells it out in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13 and Luke uh, 21, uh, the Olivet Discourse. So that if you go, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 24, repeatedly Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you. Uh, you know, many false prophets will come and deceive many. You know, be not deceived. He says this four or five times, talking to that future tribulation generation. Now, why would he do that? Because they're susceptible to deception. They were deceived the first time, even though it was clear, and they'll be deceived the second time. I mean, you'd sure think if, if you're a Jew today and you know the Scriptures, and, of course, I know they don't read the New Testament, but still, uh, maybe after the rapture, that'll draw them to the New Testament. I don't know. But in any event, when you see you know, an, a world ruler setting up a mark that everyone in the world has to take so they can buy and sell. You, you think a light bulb would go off and ding, ding, ding. That sounds like something Jesus told me to watch out for and they wouldn't fall prey to it. But that just shows you how powerful deception is going to be 
in the end times. And that's why uh, Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3.13 that deception is going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, we're not in those days yet. We're in the church age. But it's getting worse and worse. That's why the subtitle of my book is The Gathering Cloud of Deception, of both books. Because deception is getting worse and worse and worse. And so you, know, you look around and you go, what would make a parent of a 10-year-old mutilate their children? You know, and emasculate them. Why would deception? What would make a person who is biologically male want to be female? What would make people want to, you know, vote against a law that would require doctors to rescue aborted babies who are born alive? They make a mistake and didn't kill them and murder them all the way in the womb, and they come out alive. There was laws on the ballot that said you've got to save this child as if somehow which side of the womb you're on makes a difference in your humanity which is absurd in and of itself and yet people voted that down deception i mean we go we look at this as believers with a biblical worldview we look at the world and we go what is going on never thought i'd see the day can you believe it well this is deception and that's a cautionary tale for all of us to watch out because deception is getting uh, is getting worse and worse so, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Um, back to Isaiah mm-hmm. 61. Isaiah 61. He talks about the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he says that they are vengeance. What is the significance of the time period year versus day? Yeah, so back to Isaiah 61. The question is about the significance of the reference to the uh, acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. So, uh, day, depending on the context, can refer to a 24-hour time period or can be referred to an entire era. Uh, you see the day of the Lord often used of judgment, both historically when there's an enemy nation that God is using to bring judgment against His people, and it might be a months-long campaign, but it's called the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord, broadly speaking in Scripture, refers to everything from the rapture to the new heavens and new earth, but it can also refer just to the tribulation period. In fact, most of the time that's when it does. So it's, the day of the Lord is just a prophetically significant phrase that refers to a time of God's judgment. Uh, acceptable year, I think, is referring back to Daniel's prophecy, uh, which actually Daniel hadn't given the prophecy yet, but I think he's talking about that moment when Christ comes, that you know breaks free from the realm of eternity, puts on human flesh, comes to the earth, and uh, rescues mankind from sin. So... I, don't, I wouldn't take them as technical terms per se, but we know that that did happen at a particular moment in history. And what year was that, right? So it did happen in a year, in a particular year. We know the birth of Christ happened sometime in the winter of 5 B.C. to roughly maybe March, February or March of um, 4 B.C. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Herod was alive when Christ was an infant, because he tried to kill all the babies. Remember that? Well, we know historically that Herod died in April of 4 B.C. So Christ could not have been any born any later than that, or else so, the Bible is false. So then the year is specifically a date in time, a, a year. A moment in time. But the day can be a period of time. In this case, yeah. In this case, uh, you know, sometimes day means a literal 24-hour period, like in Genesis. Just contact, or seven days they marched around Jericho or whatever, that kind of thing. But it depends on the context. 
prophetically, the day of the Lord, you see it all over the prophets. It's referring to a time of God's direct intervention in judgment on mankind. And the biggest uh, referent would be the, the coming tribulation period, the day of the Lord. Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar with the rules of the Yeah, so back to Luke chapter 4, the question is, what, uh, what, why would the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, give Jesus permission to stand up and read? Well, he'd been astounding the Jewish leaders since he was 12 years old. Remember that? So when he, the parent, Mary and Joseph, couldn't find him, and where was he? He was in the temple, you know, just you know, putting them in their place, I guess it was. I, I, could, could just anybody walk in? I think so. I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on it either, but I would assume that you, there was a decorum, and, and you had to, as Jesus did, you know, he stood up, and then they handed him the scroll. It's not like he just commandeered the service and disrupted it and said, I'm taking over. I mean, it was, they invited him to do it, and I'm sure there were many others. Um, an expert on the first century Jewish culture could probably give you lots of examples, but uh, but in Jesus' case, I mean, he certainly, um, even though his ministry had just begun, you have to remember, this is God in the flesh we're talking about. And he started his ministry in 33 A.D. when he was 37 years old, by the way. See, we know that for a fact. A lot of people think, oh, he was 33 because he, 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 when he died anyway. I'm sorry, he, he started his ministry in 30 A.D. when he was 34 uh, years old. He died in 33 A.D. when he was 37. A lot of people say, well, since he died in 33, which is pretty universally accepted uh, and proven, uh, well, he must have been 33 years old, right? 33 A.D., the year of our Lord. But the date, that, those, that dating scheme didn't come about till centuries later. And we now know, using today's dating of B.C. and A.D., that Jesus had to have been born in the winter of 5 to 4 B.C., and which would then make him, by the time he started his ministry in 30 A.D., 34, he died at age 37. But anyway, if he didn't start his ministry till 34 years old, imagine what it, his life before that. I mean, we get a three-and-a-half-year snippet in God's Word of the life of Christ, our Savior. But imagine before that. He was, as a child, he's eating around the table with his brothers and, you know, you just kind of wondered, did he do miracles? Did he show off? You know, what, what did he do? He didn't sin. We know that. The Bible's clear on that. But, you know, what did he do? And then after he, even when he became adult, was he working with his father in the, in, as a carpenter? You know, he would, this was God in the flesh. But he began his ministry, uh, you know, as, as an adult. And the Bible tells us he was tempted in every way as we are. I think that goes beyond just the the 40 days in the wilderness to a lifetime of living life the way you and I live life and facing everything that we face and yet without sin. That's what's so amazing. So, uh, yeah. Um, we've talked multiple times about how Old Testament prophecy um, predicted the pretty much the exact day that mm -hmm. Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem. That's right. The triumphant how is that uh, justified? Uh, how was that 
justified then and now as not being the as that uh, not being a reliable prophecy? Well, <laughs> so we get that from Daniel's prophecy. The question is, you know, we, the Bible predicts to the day when Christ would ride into Jerusalem, and you know how to some, huh? In the Old Testament, right? Yeah. So how do people then and now dispute that, right? Yeah. Is that essentially what you're That's asking? Exactly right. Well, then it's easy to see because you know they didn't have near the documentation and the, you know the. It wasn't information was different back then. So yes, anybody that was counting the days could have arrived at the clear date, but it wasn't that simple. Now there's no excuse. Now people who disputed are just ignorant or blinded or just determined to bring their theological presuppositions to the text and dispute it. Um, happens all the time. There's a whole opposing theological viewpoint of people who, although they're conservative in the sense that they value the authority of God's Word, they believe in inerrancy, they, they love Jesus, they just have a completely different understanding of, of the Bible. But yeah, if you go to Daniel's prophecy, Daniel tells us that from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem up until Messiah the Prince has come would be 173,880 days. That's straight out of Scripture. Um, we know that decree occurred March 5th, 444 B.C. If you count forward days using the Hebrew calendar of 360 days a year, you arrive precisely at the accepted date of the triumphal entry, which was March 30th, 33 AD, which, by the way, was a Monday. We celebrate the triumphal entry on Sunday, but it was actually on a Monday. So, yeah, I mean, it's, that, that's just, just one more example of the trustworthiness of God's Word. Well, let's, t let's uh, take a break. Thank you, guys. We'll pick up again next week. We'll start the service. We want to try to start promptly at 10, so grab your coffee and donuts and say your hellos and come back because we're going to try to start at 10. we got a busy day today with our fellowship after church. So.